It's news from nowhere. I'm Corey Pine. I had a different intro recorded for this show. It's a long interview with an expert on the development of fascist movements. Then a white supremacist terrorist killed two people a couple miles from where we were speaking here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, As it turned out, the killer was someone I had met a few weeks before at a free speech rally where he was throwing Nazi salutes and shouting racial slurs. It's a sad and frightening situation all around. I will skip recapping the headlines everyone has seen by now and just introduce my guest. He is Alexander Reed Ross. He's an instructor and PhD candidate at Portland State University. He's the author of a new book called Against the Fascist Creep, published by AK Press. Alexander is extremely well-versed in the history of fascism as well as anti-fascism. And my goal in talking to him was understanding where we've been so that we can better understand and influence where we might be going. Here's Alex. Uh, let, let's talk about uh, your book against the fascist creep. So um, briefly describe what it is, why you wrote it, and what you did to research it. So Against the Fascist Creep is a book about the rise of fascism in the United States and actually throughout the world today and how it occurs through the insinuation of fascist politics through the um, right wing and left wing um, as well as just sort of hardline fascist groups. And obviously what people have done over the history of um, the 20th and, and this century to, to stand in its way. I had written uh, a bit about, you know, these sort of occult fascist sort of weird marginal groups that were drawing left-wingers, you know, anarchists, nihilists into the same spaces with hardcore, you know, boots and braces Nazi skinheads and trying to organize national revolution or what have you against neoliberalism, you know, against everything that, you know, the left wing also hates. So it took me a couple of years to uh, to grind out. In the process, I ended up unearthing this prominent anarchist who, it turned out, was a fascist. And Was this locally in the Northwest or uh, somewhere else in the country? No, this was, this was all the way in South Africa. But he, his name is Michael Schmidt. He um, had promoted himself as a leader of modern current of true anarchism, right? He kind of like, you know, beat people over the head with what he thought of as the grand anarchist tradition. And so it was doubly shocking, you know, that this sort of anarcho-Puritan turned out to be, you know, a pan-secessionist, Duganist, you know, fash. So that's took you in a that delayed your completion of the book and then I since it's just coming out I'm in I imagine the Trump campaign was another sort of out of the blue thing that you had to incorporate because you, yeah. you do tie it in to the history of fascism in general and where, where it belongs but it was one of those things and the alt-right too you know the alt-right when I started writing the book was really marginal you know people weren't paying attention to it at all and so, yep, when the Trump campaign came along, it sort of made perfect sense in an odd and saddening way. But the alt-right was really what brought everything together. 
let's just go right up to the present day because um, I got in touch with you because I was working on an article for a local newspaper here in Portland about some of the right-wing groups that have been essentially touring the country, going up and down the West Coast, Seattle, Berkeley, more recently Boston, New Orleans, New York, to fight with leftists in the streets. These are usually framed as like free speech rallies. Uh, the ones in Berkeley, I think, it was about... Um, Appearances by Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter and student groups, I believe, wanted to know platform these speakers and these right-wing street brawlers essentially showed up to, as they put it, stand up for free speech. But you place them in the context of a history of uh, sort of an amorphous and constantly evolving sort of fascist ideology. Who are, who are these guys? Like, what do they represent? Let's just start with the assumption it's not credible that it's really about free speech. Because they are, you know, they are advocating things as well. They're mm-hmm. not just opposing no platforming. They're also showing up with insignia, slogans, and all kinds of things. So who are these guys? For those uh, who might be listening that might be under the misimpression that they are actually, like, free speech defenders. Yeah, I mean, these protests sort of started as pro-Trump rallies, which was kind of a, a, a difficult thing for people to swallow, right? Because he's already won. Why does he have to have pro-Trump rallies? But then after Trump bombed an airstrip in Syria, that made the, the far right quite angry, and so they changed tone from pro-Trump to free speech because they were being opposed anyway. And so now we have basically this sort of rump faction of Trump supporters who have taken off the the Trump mask and it's still Pepe the Frog, right? This is the alt-right um, in other appearances. And they're getting the support of the militia movement, which they before had not had so much because they were more a product of online sort of gamer culture, um, the sort of message boards of the um, politically incorrect and childish uh, libertarian sector of uh, you know the internet, and that that configuration has has startled and and um, frankly scared a lot of people, right? Because even before tr- the Trump you know candidacy, the alt right which is an assortment of white nationalists, traditionalists, uh, so-called race realists, and uh, oddball sort of blood-and-soil ultra-nationalists. When they were going around with marginal conferences, making kind of policy suggestions about shutting down the borders and weeding out minorities, people ignored them and thought that they were very silly. However... It was really through these sort of scandals in Gamergate, you know, where feminist journalists tried to expose the misogyny in gamer culture and were responded to with not just hate speech, but rape threats and in like IRL in real life stalking and swatting the like calling filing false reports to the police or emergency calls to get the SWAT team sent to people's houses, things like that. That kind right? of thing, yeah. Under All under the umbrella of supposedly innocuous trolling, right? For, for the lulls. It was all for the lulls. For the lulls, right? Yeah. Uh, internet harassment, that kind of thing. Um, so this, this campaign uh, of misogyny uh, snowballed and that's where figures like Milo Yiannopoulos came out and started saying 
we're against PC culture. This is totally fair. Boys will be boys. You know, if you don't want to get attacked by the bees, don't swat at the hive, you know? And Milo and sort of Breitbart and Richard Spencer were able to corral a lot of this internet culture into a sort of amorphous political entity that spanned from the radical right wing uh, to fascism, pure and simple. And Richard Spencer was able to sort of take on the political leadership, and he is a fascist. So by my definition, the alt-right became a, a fascist movement. It, it was something that he had named, something that he had sort of groomed. And um, when Trump came along, Trump became a sort of Trojan horse. You know, a lot of people think tro Trump is the, uh, the sort of leader of the alt-right, maybe. But in fact, he was always sort of their version of Napoleon Bonaparte. He was this sort of populist leader who they could use in order to gain greater um, power and prestige, but somebody they could discard at any point. Well, he's certainly not allergic to their ideology. I think I'm paraphrasing alt-right blogger there when I say that, but uh, right, I mean, we know that he is very proud of his uh, German blood and he attributes <laughs> it to, you know, he attributes all of his success to his genes probably picked up his that idea from his dad who was likely KKK member. We know from his uh ex-wives that he used to keep copies of uh, Hitler uh, at Mein Kampf and in his armoire. Yeah, <laughs> next to his bed. Although he doesn't strike me as a big reader, maybe that was aesthetic. <laughs> maybe as a genuine sort of historical interest, but that seems unlikely. I see what you're saying, that he was more of an empty vessel that was used by these alt-right operatives and propagandists. But he he wasn't hostile to their line of thought. No, he knew about them and he totally uh, adopted them. Uh, he dog whistles to them to this day, you know? Now, a lot of people say that Trump doesn't dog whistle, he's got a bullhorn. <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with that, but what do you, what do you think? It's, it's a dance that he's doing, right? He's trying to remain in the public eye with pl plausible deniability. But he's also trying to make explicit to the fans that he has among the fascists and whatnot that he is, you know, on their side or that, you know, wink, wink, you know? So it's still not explicit. Uh, what we see of Trump and, and this whole Three Ring Circus is uh, just the tip of the iceberg. When you say, um, you know, there's more he could say, but he's trying to keep this uh, sort of fascist part of his base on his side and moving along with him. I mean, are you talking about him or are we talking about certain people in his administration? I mean, to what extent can we identify those people? Are we talking about the Breitbart crew, Bannon, Gorka, Stephen Miller? I don't know if he was from Breitbart, but he's definitely... Uh, he's kind of an old racist, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. His views were known, I guess. Mm. Um, are, are those the people you're talking about or do we not know specific, like? Well... I mean, it is true that there is a sort of split in his administration, right? And Bannon represents the radical right, economic nationalists, you know, things normally sort of associated with uh, the conservative revolution, perhaps one would say, or, or uh, this sort of populist radical right, um, welfare chauvinism, 
and uh, xenophobia, uh, certainly Islamophobia, all of those things that have, you know, to be fair, existed in in Republican Party politics and Democratic Party politics to varying degrees for a long, long time. But he is, Bannon especially, his his, uh, strategies as a provocateur, I think, are what really kind of mesh with Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump likes to be in people's faces. He likes to steal the spotlight. He, you know, is totally self-absorbed. And I think Bannon sort of feeds into that. He's, but at the same time, Bannon's been sort of marginalized. Yeah. Because that initial phase that was so scary where he was, you know, signing these executive orders to ban all immigrants from, you know, a select group of countries, right, with Arab majority, that that phase totally ruined his initial move as a as a president and he was sort of fighting an uphill battle after the after those initial failures so i think he's moved away from from that strategy a bit although that doesn't necessarily manifest a change in positions you know it is interesting to see whether or not in his economic council neoliberalism is gaining some more of a foothold than the economic nationalist platform but we'll really have to sort of wait and see what happens with nafta gorka is kind of maybe out of the administration you know he's the hungarian nationalist magyar they said he was out uh, or there were some reports, le- leaked reports, essentially, that said that he was on his way out, but then he's he never left the White House. I mean, he's still there. I think, you know, we see so many leaks out of this White House that you can only assume that people are trying to use the press to undermine their opponents. So uh, I would infer that some of Gorka's enemies in the White House perhaps exaggerated that, the degree that he was on thin ice. You also see in these kinds of shakeups that the people who s- seemingly get fired actually get promoted because they get if you get fired because you get caught, you know, that means you probably took one for the team and that means that you have a certain loyalty and if you pass that trial by fire, you often get even further embedded in these kinds of you know, networks. So uh, you, you mentioned Bannon and Richard Spencer as figures that united these different threads on the far right around a sort of new manifestation of fascism. And it does, um, it is an improbable sort of grouping, right? To have the internet pepes, you know, the red pill posters, the Gamergate weirdos, teaming up with like redneck militia types and, you know, Christian identity type fundamentalists, um, sort of degenerate (laughs) young millennials who probably watch a a lot of disturbing pornography online. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not really sure what those those dudes were doing before the alt right, but they really found their cause. You know, like you mean the Oath <laughs> Keepers or the Gamer Gators? No, the Gamer Gators. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah the alt right really gave those people like a political cause to fight for. Well, you know, I wonder. Pankaj Mishra wrote something about the masses of alienated people, meaning economically alienated around the world for whom, like, contemporary capitalism is, offers nothing, like, no real income, no no sense of purpose. You know, in the UK, they would call some of these people um, neat, you know, for not an education, employment, or training. Mm-hmm. Like, essentially, surplus people. Definitely. And this was, this was often talked about in the years following the financial recession, right? 2008. Yeah, yeah. this sort of, like... 
new graduate of university who's not going to get a job, who's going to who's faced with the reality that they are no longer that the American white male is no longer upwardly mobile like their parents were and is disenfranchised from uh, political context, no longer has heroes, no longer takes TV sitcoms seriously, I guess. If you look back into the sort of annals to the beginning of, of fascism, or rather pre-fascism, it's the same situation. There was a movement to unite left-wing and, and right-wing in the late 19th century. Uh, Maurice Bars was one of the leading sort of proponents of this from France. And he was saying, we know exactly who we're speaking to. It's the the proletariat of bachelors, right? This is a, a group that has been, you know, disenfranchised from the soil, you know, deracinated, uprooted, no longer has a home in, in their country and no longer feels proud of who they are, right? And it's our mission to, you know, make them have this sense of belonging, this sense of place, and to do that, for bars, they had to launch xenophobic riots, uh, anti-Semitic brawls, campaigns for the motherland, you know, uh, revanchist sort of anti-Prussian stuff, you know, that kind of thing. So this is, this is late 19th century, so what, like 20 years or so before the Russian Revolution, but Marx's ideas are out there, well-known, and there are proto-communist movements well, in in the in the late nineteenth century in France, the communist movement was rather strong, although it was really anarcho syndicalism that was was prominent, as well as socialism. And um, what Bars tried to do was peel the anarcho away from syndicalism, and replace it with nationalist, right? And and it was that project with Charles Maurras of the um, Action Française that gave fascism its early character and content. It goes goes back to this era even in Germany, though. Earlier kind of manifestations of Hitler's party, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, was um, the German Workers' Party in contested land between Germany and the Czech Republic, which contained Bohemia, right? And there you have the Sudetenland between Germany and the Czech Republic, which is largely populated by Germans. And these were sort of German bohemians who believed in a workers' party and the proletariat, but also believed that Germans should all be part of Germany, right? That they should organize along ethnic lines, whatever that means. So, so even in the pre-Nazi, pre-World War I times, there was still tendencies that very much aligned with what Hitler's party ended up formulating. And what were they drawing on for that ethnic sort of vision? Was it some sense of, you know, Christian identity? Was it uh, sort of esoteric mysticism? Uh, what what was their the well that they were drawing from? The esoteric mysticism came a bit later, although there was this sort of paganism that that drew Wagner toward these kinds of, you know, mythological ideas of of the German, you know, person. And a lot of this also happens around the time of Bismarck and the unification of Germany, because before that it was a bunch of separate principalities, um, kingdoms and whatnot. And the the attempt to draw out an identity for Germany um, under the Second Empire brought about this 
quest for the German peasant, you know, the German individual, the, you know, German folk, right? And so you have this Volkish movement in the late 19th century, early 20th century, tied to romanticism, to going to visiting ruins, you know, uh, medieval history, pre-medieval sort of paganism, trying to figure out where people belonged in the sort of national framework. And part of that also was attached to understanding ecology, right, as different, right? The specifically German ecology, you know. And, and so they were concerned with the environment. Somewhat, yeah, because, you know, this, there's this romantic tendency to say, ah, like the urban areas are infested with people and pollution and all of that stuff. And even the person who coined the term ecology would later sort of join these esoteric currents that fed into National Socialism. Um, the person who coined the term biocentrism went toward this anti-Semitic view of like how cities were made and you know who is sort of the architect, the grand architect of modernism and stuff like that. So there was, at the same time, a tendency to see ecology as very liberating and left-wingers who were involved in this or um, anarchists and people like that. And then, on the other hand, to see that liberation as tending toward a distinct German fashion. Right. Were they drawing only, essentially recruiting ideologically only from anarchists or also from socialists? Was there something about the, um, the sort of ideologies of the left that made anarchists more susceptible to fascist recruitment? Or no? Ideology seldom appears among people as a solidified phenomenon. Right. Right? Ideologues are are less common than people who attach their desires to particular political currents at a given time and then vote or something like that, you know, as their grand measure of political engagement. So it's not like everybody's comparing manifestos and like... Exactly. You know, deciding, I agree with this, but not this. And so what you find with fascism is this syncretic capacity to, to merge different political ideologies at... Uh, these sort of basins of attraction in some system theory, right? So, like, in a, a place of accumulated desires, right? We want, you know, to feel like we have order in our lives. We want to feel like we belong. We want to feel at ease with, you know, our country's direction. And we want basic amenities, at least. But we want, you know, to be the masters of our own destiny, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And skillful um, politicians will be able to cultivate these desires that further their interests while also capturing ideologies that, you know, pretend to the same um, common destiny, right? And then that's what the fascists were able to do. It wasn't just recruiting the communists and recruiting this and that. They would recruit people from different unions, from different social networks in rural areas and farming areas, you know, and this and that. But... Especially at that time, there was no binary, you know, you're either this or that. It was a very complicated field. In Italy, for example, you had... Nobody was calling themselves fascists. Well, yeah. not until 1914, which was the first time yeah. that Mussolini used the term, in scare quotes. But, you know, there were different left-wing tendencies. 
And the left-wing tendencies had a tendency to fight amongst one another, which is not unusual. And so when Mussolini came actually out of um, the Socialist Party, um, after being kicked out of the Socialist Party, and formed his own fascist band that was fighting with the left, it was sort of easy to see that as just another, you know, political complex formation within, you know, a system of infighting <laughs> amongst, you know, radical parties. So the idea, let's all gang up on the fascists, didn't necessarily appeal to people who were fighting with other left-wing factions. And because so, it might serve their advantage to have allies from any, you know, any sort of rival sector, right? Sure. For, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was that was a, a position amongst communists at the time that um, there we should never join in a united entity with, you know, the socialist and liberal uh, leaderships because they'll, you know, contravene our own authority over our own party and our own, you know, desired uh, uh, political objectives. Interesting. And so Mussolini was perhaps able to use that disunity among the left to pull from uh, left-wingers and also uh, open up space for his own assaults. So can we really even tell the story of fascism without telling the story of anti-fascism? I don't think so. Um, it goes it goes back a, a ways to the Dreyfus Affair, I think, in France. Um, and as I said, uh, Maurice Bars was sort of stoking these anti-Semitic riots, and there was a movement on the left to ban behind Jews in France and to say, we're anti-racists as well as anti-capitalists, right? And that was when Emile Zola wrote uh, uh, Je Accuse, right? He was accusing um, the establishment of France for framing Dreyfus and stoking nationalist ten tendencies and sentiment in order to gain political foothold against the left. So and Dreyfus, the, the, the capsule version of the Dreyfus affair is that this, uh, this man was essentially cast as the center of a Jewish plot to undermine France, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Espionage with the hated Prussians. And, um, and so they vindicated Dreyfus. They found out that the document that um, that uh, spoke to his uh, uh, treason was actually a forgery, and one of the leaders of the anti-Dreyfusards um, said, "If it's a forgery, then it's a true forgery because it still <laughs> says exactly what um, we believe, which is that there's a Jewish conspiracy." Um, and so the left managed to actually form this kind of united. Um, anti uh, anti-Semitism or something, you know, <laughs> um, which worked, and it unfortunately fell apart. And the way that it fell apart was some people on the left started working with the far right, um, Charles Moras, and um, envisioning this uh, post-Republican, post-parliamentary. Uh, system where the nation would unite under these mythological tropes of whatever in the French nation is um, 
and you would have workers syndicates who were organized under um, the sort of the bosses and political bosses who bound themselves together in the national community, right? So the in the interests of uh, your union, your boss will be the president of your union, right? That kind of thing <laughs> kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, but um, they were able to foster some degree of radical following because they supported revolutionary politics. They said, you know, down with democracy, down with parliamentarism, down with representational government, right? We on the left and right both believe this. So they attacked the center. And that was really where fascism came about. And then in opposition to fascism, um, after Mussolini sort of, in a way, kind of stole the idea and, and became the, the, the leader of the movement. Because he was not the brightest guy, Mussolini, right? I mean, he was a very clever politician in his way, but he, he was not a deep uh, thinker or uh, a, some kind of uh, scholarly mind. Well, anybody who ends their life hanging by their you know feet at a gas station surrounded by a crowd of like enthusiastic you know celebrators you know, you got to think, well, he must have made some wrong turn somewhere. <laughs> but but um, he was certainly not seen as an intellectual, let's put it that way. He was more of a womanizer and this sort of uh, brute, you know? Um, he thought he was, like, the biggest revolutionary on the block, but, you know... And he had a huge ego, and he liked to be photographed a certain way. Mm-hmm, of course, right. of course. Called himself Il Duce, right? You know, um... And, and he really got off on colonialism and war. His big thing was that we're all sort of leftists, but you know what? The left lacks the order and discipline it needs in order to mount a sincere revolutionary effort. And it's too divided. And so um, that's why he supported going to World War I. And then when they came back, he was saying, now we have a trench aristocracy, like a band of people who have been through the trenches, who understand military order, military combat. Now we can, you know, attack, you know? And so they went on the attack and, and, and fought the left. I suppose we need to talk about World War One a little bit, because there's no historical or no consensus among historians about what World War One was. Um, there's different arguments on the left about what it was. Some put it in the context of, um, you know, a, a global class revolt, essentially. And, arist and aristocracy attempting to hold on to uh, its position. Yeah. Um, that's one way of looking at it. There are other ways. Uh, but those arguments were also happening at the time, right? Because whatever, um, whatever it really was, the First World War, whatever uh, factors were primarily responsible, you had uh, the reality of, of millions and millions of uh, people dying who were not from ruling classes. It was essentially uh, a new class of um, soldiers facing modern weapons for the first time and developing, an, in, I think on all sides of the conflict, an intense uh, antipathy to uh, their officers. Mm. Yeah, there was. A, it's a real tragedy in a way, in a lot of ways. The workers' movement had become gigantic uh, before World War One started. 
But then so had the nationalist movement, and the two in some ways were a bit inseparable, and that is the heart of the problem. You see, for example, Proudhonists carrying uh, significant misogynistic ideas, um, Proudhon himself being anti-Semitic, Bakunin being anti-Semitic, and, and, and in World War I, um, the, the French side of uh, socialists agreeing to the sacred union, you know, nobody will go on strike, there will be no labor mobilizations, which is the opposite of what happened in the United States, where everybody went batshit crazy and was striking everywhere, <laughs> uh, especially in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but Germ in Germany, right, like famously, Kautsky's Social Democrats voted for the armaments and voted for entering World War One. It's catastrophic. And right, the conditions were so terrible that despite the immense nationalism and the immense patriotism that I suppose people felt, um, they were driven to insanity, you know, and with the end of the war, there was a feeling, I think, in, in the German military that this has gone on way too long, and that even with the end of the war, Hindenburg is dragging his feet, you know, to armistice, and this is going to go on forever. So the war was ended, some people say by armistice, and other people say by the mutiny that led to the revolution that toppled the, the, the Kaiser and sent the Bavarian king running, you know? So it's... Especially in Germany, you know, for the German political system, this huge catastrophe that did foster, you know, pretty significant backlash, revolutionary backlash, in fact. But, again, with the socialists, uh, they immediately used their mandate to squash the, the communists to the left of them, making deals with um, the far right to stay in power. You know, so you had from the end of the war with the establishment of the, the Weimar government, this precarious balance between ultra right, you know, um, patriotic veterans who thought, you know, the war is still going on and it's against the socialists, really. Like once we're rid of the socialists, we're right back in France, you know, and uh, and the socialists who are just basically trying to keep the working class, you know, happy enough so that they could remain in power. And with the Great Depression, you know, everything was changed. It's really tempting to jump to the parallels to the present day from this point in the story. Um, but maybe we should hold off for a little bit longer because um, we've gone, we kind of skipped over the Russian Revolution, but you alluded to the 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 stuff I mentioned, like uh, communist revolts in Eastern Germany, um, which were crushed. Uh, and even those have almost been written out of the sort of mainstream history at this point. Uh, I think part of the reason we're having trouble uh, in this country today talking about whether we're dealing with fascism in government and on the streets is the history is well taught. So it, mm. it, it's probably useful to go over a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, what happened with the Great Depression then? I mean, uh, were, were, did that energize these fascist movements we're talking big about? Time. Yeah. Oh, big time, yeah. Um, although in Germany, uh, I mean, uh, uh, the situation's completely different from in Italy, right? 
Um, in Italy, uh, the the depression was was I think less uh, felt than in Germany, and of course, in Italy, the fascists have already rolled into power by you know the end of twenty three. Um, in in Germany, at this time, the Nazi Party is sort of well known they they launched a a, a a coup attempt the the beer hall putsch right so they had they the 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 nazis had sort of made their name through the beer hall putsch of uh november in in 1923 but they were still a component part of a larger patriotic movement that included the Freikorps and the, the steel helmets and other groups that were basically an armed insurgency against the Weimar Republican system. Um, they wanted to establish a second empire. Um, they thought Kaiser Wilhelm's system was weak sauce, and um, they definitely thought they had been stabbed in the back by the socialists who had overthrown the, the Kaiser and signed the terrible Versailles Treaty and um, were basically run by the Jews, you know. So during this, I mean, the governments, uh, you know, outside of the Soviet Union during this time in Europe and the U.S. were were operating what we would essentially call an austerity policy today, right? I mean, the government policies were, were not helping uh, people sort of endure this economic crisis. In fact, they're probably exacerbating it. In fact, one of the reasons for the 1923 Beer Hall Putsch was um, that France basically invaded the northwest part of Germany, which is the industrial sector, um, uh, because there had been a, uh, a drop in productivity and France and the, the Allies thought that Germany was going to start, you know, um, failing to pay their um, their their due from the war, right? And so that shocked people, right? And that it, it led to an economic depression, you know, in the in the early twenties. And then um, you have the Nazis sort of answering that that resentment and that anger. Um, and the rest of the patriot movement, uh, patriotic movement at that time, which was basically doing similar things to the patriot movement of today. They were stashing arms, you know, building these kind of compounds, um, making incursions against, like, border watch against Poles, um, and things like that. Um, so we do see, like, patterns developing. But it was the Great Depression that thrust Hitler, really, into the limelight. Um, along with um, Hitler's presidential bid against Hindenburg, because Hindenburg was, you know, obviously not well received by the the right wing by this point. He had done some uh, agricultural reforms and things like that that they thought they felt betrayed by, um, especially the farming populists of Sledgewick Holstein. So when Hitler went up against Hindenburg, and it was obvious that the right-wing populists weren't going to, you know, win. Um, they dropped out of the race, and some said vote for Hitler, and then others said, you know, don't vote in this one. We don't have a dog in this fight. 
Um, and Hitler got a, a surprising number of votes, although he lost. Um, he's, he, sh- he shocked you know, pretty much the world with how well he did. And um, you just see this you know, exponential rise in the amount of votes that the Nazis were getting. And they were promoting themselves furiously, you know, feverishly. Um, they were using all the mockery, you know, all of the sort of like callous ridicule and humor, you know, that Goebbels could supply. Um, they were traveling by airplane, sometimes to several places a day, you know, and they were they were just really rapidly organizing their base, taking full advantage of new media technology. Absolutely that was available at the time. Absolutely, right? radio. Yeah. Um, they were printing all kinds of different newsletters, newspapers that were just pure propaganda. Not that there was anything in Germany at that time that we would recognize as sort of a fourth estate or type press. Um, everything was partisan mm-hmm. uh, in a sense, but uh, there was uh, something novel about their use of media. Certainly, certainly. It was pretty advanced, and you find that with the radical right populists. Even even in the years of uh, Boulanger in, in uh, fin de siècle France, you find this sort of uh, mass production of political agitation, you know, posters, you know, mass-produced pamphlets and things like that. And they were speaking to multiple audiences at the same time, right? The whole pitch of uh, the German fascist movement was as an as a ethnic workers' party, but at the same time they were pitching themselves to... Um, you know, in, industrial leaders and political leaders uh, of the old guard as as a as an anti-communist force, right? Yeah, as as a as sort of a we're your best bet against the Reds. Yeah, who are naturally you know all Jews or whatever. Um, they uh, definitely um, use that anti-Bolshevik specifically. Uh, narrative, right? All the communists and socialists that aren't national socialists are Bolsheviks connected to the, you know, international Jewish conspiracy. So they r- represented the real, you know, heart of, of German socialism, just like Wagner or whatever. And um, for Hitler, that was pretty meaningless. Um, on the other hand, uh, Hitler was not the undisputed leader of the party for a while. Strasser, um, uh, Gregor Strasser was the the sort of uh, uh, second in command and was much more interested in mobilizing that sort of uh, national syndicalist idea that um, Moraz had uh, presented in in France earlier, and um, and Strasser was a contender. I mean, uh, at first Goebbels was in his camp and called. He was like down with the petit bourgeois. Adolf Hitler, you know, was a quote from uh, um, um, Goebbels at one point. But Hitler started making these deals. He, he created his own security force, right, Himmler's uh, SS, and uh, they brought in sort of fantastical conspiracy theorists, mythologist-type people who were involved in the business community to create this sort of, like, inner circle. And Hitler was making deals with, you know, former Reichsbank um uh, president and shocked and um, you know kind of cozying up to the corporate elites and Strasser didn't like that one bit his brother fled basically was cast out and, and went into exile 
Otto Strasser. Otto Strasser later became the leader of the sort of uh, post-war fascist movement, at least ideologically speaking. But Gregor Strasser was murdered, right, in the Night of the Long Knives after Hitler came to power in 1933. The sort of um, extended purge that knocked off um, the uh, leader of the SA, Ernst Röhm, as well as uh, von Papen's secretary, <laughs> and lasted for a while during uh, the month of June in 1934. All of his strongest rivals from within the right. Yes. Um, he believed, and there was perhaps reason to believe this, that, that Gregor Strasser and Ernst Röhm uh, were plotting from within his own party maybe to carry out some sort of palace coup or create a kind of a national front, right, that would involve radical right leaders, um, sort of conventional conservative leaders, military establishment, uh, and of course them, against Hitler, who had taken over the party completely. And, and what was happening on the left at this time in Italy and Germany? Was there some uh, new sense of uniting against... Um, fascist force that identified Bolshevism, but also the left as, as an enemy? By that point, the left had been sort of suppressed. Um, Physically and... Brutally, yes. Yeah. Right. You know, I think Gromsky is in prison at this point, and Malatesta put in on house arrest. And, you know, the, the left is pretty much a, a, a done deal in Italy. Uh, it's underground, rather. In France... You have the the Popular Front. There's the the French section of the Workers International, which turned into the Socialist Party. It was a different beast back then. Um, and the French Communist Party, which was created after the Bolshevik Revolution. And those two forces sort of merged into a a Popular Front, right in '35. Uh, led by Leon Blum of the SFIO, I mean, the Socialist Party. And they actually won, you know, surprisingly, perhaps, but they were leading France in 35, and um, the far right was really at their heels. I mean, this was heavily contested parliamentary uh, politics by the mid-30s. So, you know, the the left was in power, but the right was by no means out of the game at that point. And of course, in Spain, uh, the next year, the Popular Front was elected into power, uh, resulting in a concatenation of events that led to the invasion of, of Spain by Generalissimo Franco and the Spanish Civil War. Which really is, you know, some, you could place it actually as the start of World War II, but at a minimum it was a trial run. It was. I, I think you can, um, on the basis of a, of a left versus right narrative, um, however, the real tragedy of the Spanish Civil War is that appeasement was still alive and well, you know? Um, or it was perhaps the beginning of appeasement. Um, you have corporations sending fuel and support to Franco's armies while the... Including American corporations. Oh, yeah, Texaco, yeah. 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 Um, while the governments of the U.S., England, and France sort of uh, look the other way. And these, these, these were hotly contested uh, uh, issues in, in France as well because the Popular Front is in charge, right? And so there's this sort of underground 
underground network of military figures and far-right figures who call themselves uh, basically like the, the balaclavas or whatever, you know, Kagul. And they went around like sabotaging and blowing things up and then blaming the left for it in order to pull people away from supporting the left in the Spanish Civil War and toward right-wing causes. And that was sort of a, a, an early progenitor of, of similar fascist groups that would emerge after World War II. And so the post-World War II, I think we can safely skip World War II from Spain through World War II, and, and now there's a period that is also less known in this country, which is, um, you know, post-war fascism. Yeah, which right? is, yeah. Which is pretty interesting and which brings us right to the present day. And so, you know, listeners may know um, that there was essentially an amnesty for Nazis program after, after the Second World War. Key, uh, especially Nazi scientists and intelligence officers, um, Werner von Braun being the most famous, were, were recruited by the Allies, U.S. government especially... And, you know, Germany was divided. Um, some of the leaders of um, West Germany essentially were people who had uh, collaborated with Nazis or been Nazis. Um, you know, not to, not to judge the, the post-war policy one way or the other, but that's just what happened. But what was, what was happening? What, what, hap- what happened, I guess, to people uh, who were carrying the torch after the war? Well, Apart from those that were recruited, essentially, uh, to, to work as um, anti-communist um, agents for the West. Yeah, so denazification was kind of derailed really early on, right? There was a second um, Nuremberg trial that was supposed to um, uh, take place uh, over the issue of uh, the Battle of the Bulge and some war crimes that took place. But it was derailed by um, one particular Nazi uh, named Aschenhauer and um, surprisingly perhaps um, McCarthy, the United States anti-communist, um, with the support and help of a number of other uh, figures in the in the far right. And there's also this immediate, you know, promulgation of the notion that the Holocaust didn't really happen. Just a complete blanket denial that's going on. And you find this strange fellow who was involved in the Nuremberg uh, trial named Francis Parker Yaki, who comes out with these sort of ideas influenced by an Italian fascist named Julius Evola that the current fascist movement must be anti-NATO and by extension be sort of anti-imperialist in a way. And this goes back to fascist and, and, and Nazi propaganda against the English in the 30s even. You know, you have this uh, propaganda about the English being um, this horrible imperialist power, which it was, of course, but naturally, you know, the Italians didn't make a better go of it very well when they were, you know, gassing Ethiopians and... I say Ethiopia, the yeah, record's not great. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, what, 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 Yaki and Evola... And, and Yaki was American. He was, yes. Yes, I think he was Minnesotan, I want to say. And uh, was he a member of the Bund or some... 
some pro-Nazi organization during the war? No, in fact, he was, I think he was in the U.S. Army, but I think they also strangely sort of discharged him, um, perhaps without um, reason, which um, some scholars have have speculated that he might have been uh, a German agent um, espionage. uh, During the war. During the war, yeah, uh, with his friend... um, whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. It'll come to me. And Evola was, an, I mean, people might be familiar with him just H. because... H. Keith Thompson is the name again. Oh, of, of Yaki's... Yaki's friend. Okay. An associate. He, Yaki actually wrote a speech for Joe McCarthy um, that was going to go in this uh, talk that he was going to deliver before the the uh, German-American Bund. Uh, at least it's, it's a successor organization after the war. And it was going to be floor managed by H. Keith Thompson, who was also a non. But it was called off because people were raising a fuss about it. I mean, McCarthy has, was a dirty, dirty guy. Well, and he man- McCarthy managed to turn the, How- the House on American Activities Committee. My understanding it started as an effort to root out fascists from the military. And McCarthy essentially single-handedly turned it around to becoming a, an anti-communist uh, Witch hunt, essentially. Yeah, yeah. The House and American Activities, th- they were originally convened to to look at a secret plot that General uh, Smedley Butler brought to the attention of... Under oath, he swore that he was approached by a proxy of industrial and financial elites in the United States, including the DuPonts and the Morgan family and uh, Congress, those, those types, asking him if he wanted to lead a group like the American Legion in a coup against FDR. This is what's known as the business plot. The business right? plot, exactly. Yeah. And, and so McCarthy took that name and did a little kind of variation on it to attack communism um, and the left uh, and, and put the fear of God into the hearts of liberals for the next 20 years. And um, his leading attorney in this inquisition was a guy named Roy Cohen, who became Trump's lawyer and key consigliere, <laughs> also a mob uh, lawyer. Uh, so Roy Cohn, uh, McCarthy's lawyer, uh, fronting essentially for American fascists, uh, Nazi sympathizers, and you know trying to do essentially a left purge in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. r- right after the war. At the same time, um, you know, the U.S. Foreign Intelligence Service is is recruiting Nazis to fight uh, the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Um, right. Um, and that that was an effort that you know is not as um, clear because while the CIA has admitted to a lot of things, and um, the Italian government has fessed up about a lot of things and authored you know a couple of pretty extensive reports about what went on, the CIA has not even replied to the Italian Parliament with so much as a response about anything public regarding um, what's known as the years of lead. Because what the CIA did was it went directly to uh, officials operating under Mussolini's government and brought them into the um, Christian Democrats who would then go on to run the country basically for decades. And not just the Christian Democrats, of course, but the uh, it, the administration 
of uh, the Italian government, the security and intelligence agency, and and um, factions of the police department, and so what they were brought in to do initially was to derail the communist efforts at gaining electoral uh, victories in 1946. And after that, they continued to meddle in politics. And as a new generation of fascists came up, influenced by Evola, esoteric spiritualism, and, you know... We've mentioned Evola, but we haven't really identified him um and we shouldn't assume that people know he he was a sort of aristocratic italian um fascist uh although he denied being a fascist right he he was more of a he was also not a real aristocrat Uh, (laughs) so he was kind of a phony pretense pretensions all around exactly um but he uh he he wrote books criticizing fascism from the right i think that was actually a subtitle or a title of one of his books uh, so and, and he was espousing a, a kind of um, traditionalism, essentially saying, uh, you know, uh, aristocracy or monarchy was a superior uh, form of ordering society, very strongly um, Christian and, and hierarchical, right? Imperial, uh, samurai, warrior, code of honor, that kind of thing. Spiritual warriors, you know, locked in a heated battle against uh, really Jewry, you know. Um, the pollution and contamination of our, like, ethnos or our direct connection to the idea and cosmos and things like that. It was kooky, it was kooky stuff. Yeah, in I mean, he gets to, really bad shit. I mean, in addition like, to being extremist, it was just wacky. Yeah, he goes all the way into, like, Hyperborean Wonderland, right? This uh, idea inherited from the Theosophists and other sort of occult mystical sects that humanity is a devolution from uh, ancient Arctic um, predecessors who came out of the ether to become Hyperborean sort of master race that could teleport or not necessarily levitate like had supernatural powers but then came down to um further south and became uh the lemurian race and and still tied to mystical secrets the atlanteans as well the giants you know red bearded giants yeah and then and then eventually you wind up with the humans who are kind of just the sort of um despiritualized uh material you know uh mass you know denigration of the spirit but you have different races of humans right like you have a you have more hyperborean like descended race or intermingled race or chosen race it's the Aryan people which is not really yeah uh, a thing not really a thing <laughs> something it's made up and then you add uh, a sort of impure uh, brown people essentially uh, especially black people from Africa and they're deemed like at the lowest rung of this racial hierarchy so you have was, the spiritual racism yeah yeah and it was possible maybe for you know a a black person to aspire to mystical secrets and like rise up in the racial spiritual hierarchy um but they're not endowed with it right so he has the spiritual racism that has influenced other people 
in the global south, for example, to say, no, I am actually, you know, connected to these spiritual mystical secrets, like Carlos Serrano, for example. Right. Uh, or uh, Jason Giorgiani, uh, the contemporary academic of the alt-right who runs a, a fascist Practice. press yeah. and um, is uh, an, a, a Persian identi- identifying as Aryan, essentially. So, you mm-hmm. know, some of, the, uh, some of the times that you see um, uh, right racists talking about how they're not white supremacists, um, it's a fudge because... Um, they're talking about uh, bringing all different kinds of people that might not, the mainstream culture might not see as white, but fit into their sort of uh, mythology of, of having this pure, uh, essentially alien descended or some semi-divine uh, pure race. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Which is directly linked to the idea. It's kind of a Gnostic sort of phenomenon. It's very bizarre. Yeah, so uh, we've got Evola and and, and Yaki, and Yaki mm. as sort of the, the cross-Atlantic um, uh, torchbearers. Well, and, and, then, the, and then Peron. I mean, like Peron's people. Not necessarily... I mean, Peron himself was a little bit sort of ambiguous in his own politics, although he later identified as National Socialist in a letter to a well-known Nazi named Jean-Francois Thiriat. Um, but under Perón, a lot of Nazi war criminals sort of uh, um, created the the fascist propaganda wing uh, in exile. People like Johann von Leers, who later you know went over to Nasser's Egypt to become Nasser's propaganda minister because Nasser really loved that anti-Semitism stuff. Getting increasingly sort of ambiguous toward the the Soviet Union as Stalin sort of adopts this socialism in one country and you see the bureaucratic processes lock in place and some nationalist currents rise up in the Soviet Union. And so you wind up with increasingly sort of developed fascist movement growing up, which by the 60s had not only integrated itself within governments of Italy and Germany, um, but also developed these sorts of nuclei, right? These sort of also thought of as groupuscules, right? These small cells of, you know, maybe 150 people dispersed around causing damage, causing a lot of damage to the left, you know, breaking up meetings or even infiltrating meetings. And then in 1969, there's this explosion in the Piazza Fontana in Milan, and it's immediately blamed on the left by the members of uh, this fascist network within the Italian government. But the people who carried it out were fascists who were plotting what became known as the strategy of tension, influenced by Evola, in order to create chaos within the social order that was germinating pro-left-wing sentiment and draw people toward the state and draw the state to the right. And this was this was not necessarily novel to Italy. It had been conducted in Greece earlier uh, by the time of the coup in 67. It also had its sort of uh, gestation period in the interwar years of the Kagul, which I mentioned earlier, and also um, the secret army organization in uh, France, the OAS, 
which was fighting to keep Algeria in the French uh, um, Empire, and later uh, plotted the assassination of Charles de Gaulle. So, you know, by the 70s now, there's this network of fascist groups running around, blowing things up, killing lots of civilians, and fighting the left in this sort of internecine war. With, with them, certain. I mean, they're they're not. They, it's not like they're in a vacuum, though. I mean, they have some support, some institutional support. It's still murky. Like this is recent history. We don't know all the details, but like they're clearly getting financing from some some intelligence agencies and perhaps some industrialists. Um, some have argued that their their sort of power center was within NATO itself. Right. And I'm not just talking about like conspiracy theorists. I'm talking about like people who were involved. But it seems a bit wonky and it's hard to know because the United States is absolutely not transparent about anything that went on during this period. And when you think about the fact that like you said like the German army, the Bundeswehr, um brought in generals from the Wehrmacht, you know, the Hitler's Nazi army wholesale, you know, just brought them right in. And the uh, uh Bundesnachrichtendienst of the, the the German CIA was created by a Nazi. It was created in the 50s by um, Reinhard Galen, who was Hitler's spy chief. So yeah, the Bonn government of, of West Germany incorporated the Nazi infrastructure into its uh, state and secret services. And the impacts and effects of that, I think, are, are um, seen even today with this recent Bundeswehr plot. Yeah, let's let's use that. That's a good tie to the present day. But it seems safe to say that we're in the unfortunate position of knowing more about fascist, like the fascist history of a hundred years ago than 20, 30, 40 years ago. So let's talk. Let's talk about that plot. What happened in Germany recently? Well, it seems to be something very characteristic of the years of lead and um, the, this sort of tactic or rather strategy of drawing people to the right by launching an attack against infrastructure civilians and blaming an enemy a common enemy and in this case it was a member of the Bundeswehr who um, was plotting a terrorist attack in Germany um, that would then be blamed on a false identity that he had created for himself as a supposed Syrian refugee. Fitting into a whole, uh, you know, universe of propaganda about refugees importing terrorism and instability and, you know, raping the white women and blah, 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 all of it. Like, for years of this stuff. Absolutely, and if, if, you, if you skip along the narrative that we were um, uh, discussing there, in the 80s, for example, when the, the Soviet Union was falling apart, um, the the Bundeswehr basically formally dissolved any disconnection that they had previously had to the Wehrmacht and pretty much openly embraced its past. Sort of this narrative of Germany having a guilt complex was, you know, prominent. And then into the 90s and the 2000s, there are these uh, publishing companies that start churning out far-right propaganda marketed directly to the military. You know, and so there are these networks within the German political community that are trying to infiltrate and trying to propagandize to the military and turn them toward 
you know, this third positionist, or at this point it's the fourth positionist, um, geopolitics, which asserts that Merkel's government is betraying the German people, it's weakening the military, uh, like, purposefully, and it's bringing about um, the decline of civilization itself by drawing in immigrants by the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, you know, and, you know, intentionally diluting the ethnic stock of Europe. So an attack which some white right-wing German army officers acting presumably in a small group, but we don't really know uh, how many. I mean, there were some reports that uh, the officers that got busted were um, frequenting a lounge in Strasbourg where there was, uh, you know, Nazi propaganda on display. This is like an officer's lounge or something, presumably mm -hmm. not official, but some kind of side club. So we don't really know, like, how many people they might have been representing in their plot. Uh, but the purpose was to undermine Merkel by uh, showing that the refugee policy was, as their propaganda said, weakening Germany in some way. Yeah, well, we also do know that um, a lot of this propaganda that's being inserted into the military world is being produced by Duganist networks. There's one particular uh, journal called Zwerst. So we need to, I guess we need to establish Dugan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so this is really where, where we have the bridge from the Cold War Nazi movement in Europe to the modern Nazi movement. And it really is uh, Dugan who kind of brings us around. He was a sort of dissident excuse me, in Russia in the 60s sort of guitar-playing, you know, bohemian. Counterculture type. Yeah. Um, with right-wing politics, he hated the Soviet Union, and uh, you kind of can't blame him for but he was also involved in a very sketchy circle of people who were, you know, Sieg Heiling and, you know, singing about the SS gas chambers very joyfully and, you know... Reading, he translated Evola into um, Russian. Russian and became this propagandist of the far right. And then in the in 1990, he went to France with the the royalties that he made off of hawking his propaganda, and met up with a lot of fascist intellectuals oriented around something called the European New Right. And he was introduced to this idea of geopolitics. And so he started becoming this advocate of fascist geopolitics. And geopolitics was the idea that, like, the geography dictated politics to some extent, right? So Central Central Asia or Russia, that, like, uh, Western Russia essentially was like some some kind of global, global pivot point in that way of thinking, right? And he, if you controlled that, you controlled the world. Yeah, what he does is he sort of adopts this, uh, this syncretic idea of Eurasianism, and he relies on Karl Haushofer's um, notion of, of Großraum, like large spaces, that in the future, the world will not be divided by nation states, but of grand empires representing massive, you know, blocks. And uh, Eurasianism, you know, really kind of goes back to the 20s even, but he adopted it for himself in the 90s and basically what it means is is that from dublin to vladivostok 
um, down to the Indian Ocean, one giant spiritual empire will take shape. But it will be subdivided into homogenous ethnocentric states where no cultural or ethnic minority will exist. So that's what Eurasianism is. And it's like global separate but equal doctrines. Exactly. It's yeah. it's an apartheid oriented idea that is is drenched in the fascist movement. And they managed to convince people that it's not by developing these kind of slogans, right? And and terms that sound innocuous because they deploy people's ethical standards and assumptions toward their own ends. So they've created things like what they call ethnopluralism, which is that it's yeah. like a heterogeneous system of homogenous states. But ethnopluralism, like who doesn't like pluralism? For fascism, it's the purity and even sacredness of sovereignty, right? So in a lot of ways, what they're doing is they're rebranding the absolutism. You know, they're, they're setting up a modern despot as the sovereign, as this sort of the, the leader who binds the nation, right? And for that hierarchy to actually work, there has to be, it has to work in the molecular level as well, right down to the family life of the people in the empire. And so everybody has to become their own sort of familiar dictator, right? <laughs> and, and that's really how... So that, that's why you see the, miso- the, the fronting of misogyny, of the, uh, uh, the, red, the red pill ideology. And, and this is the callback to the earlier fascist mastery of new media. I mean, a lot of this, the organization that's happening now is happening online. So we are talking about a global movement. Right. Yeah. Like they're. Yeah. Um, so that's why sites like 4chan and uh, <laughs> Daily Stormer and the Rebel Media and uh, all of these sites, Breitbart, why they're so important? Because if you don't, if you do read them, you're plugged into a whole set of references and a whole yeah. set of different uh, niche funnels to get you to the core ideology. Sure. But if you're not plugged into that, it's completely invisible to you. And so when a gang of fascists shows up in the town square and says they're doing a rally for free speech. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing in your frame of reference that would lead you to question that. Although, you know, when you look at Alexander Dugan and his networks, I mean, his chief translator is Richard Spencer's wife, right? And um, his publishing company in, in the English language is Arctos, run by... Georgiani, right? Yeah, who right? is... Who is uh, Iranian. I mean, you know, like, um, because he sees, you know, Duganism as his sort of, uh, as what's better for him. Like, the whole idea is that the end game is basically Constantinople. Like, flipping Constantinople back into Orthodox Christianity is basically the end game for Dugan. That's what he wants to see happen. He doesn't like, and Russia doesn't like, you know, NATO's presence in Turkey. And um, for this reason and, and for the reason of, you know, obviously like the Syria conflict weighs pretty heavily in the far right in terms of what Putin wants, what the United States wants and so on. And so you find these geopolitical battles 
incorporating parts of the left in the United States as well, which is anti-war. And the Duganist sort of reservoir of um, media networks from, you know, Dugan appears on RT, you know, his uh, biggest supporters and ideologues appear on RT, they appear on Sputnik, Russia Insider, the Duran, you know, like, there are all of these different networks where people get their information that, you know, play host to Duganist theories. So there's this massive crossover that especially Richard Spencer has exploited. And um, so when you see like these patriots appearing in the town square or what have you, um, it's hard to say like, wow, this is, you know, like part of a much bigger, you know, puzzle that involves a lot of different, you know, agents throughout, you know, political geography. Um, it's hard to, you know, come to that conclusion when you just see a, a Pepe flag or something like that. But. Well, but, and, and, and to tie it back to what we're talking about from the, the period, you know, the, the early 20th century period, I mean, the reality is they're showing up with guns, they're showing up um, with the stated intention of crushing any leftists that they encounter. So where does this, where does this put us in terms of historical parallels? I mean... Right. When, when we when we see somebody like Steve Bannon, White House advisor, who's uh, flaunted his uh, appreciation for Evola. Um, <laughs> and Dugan. And Dugan. And uh, Moraz. And what? Moraz. Charles Moraz. Oh. Sorry, excuse me. No, that's okay. What what do we what do we make of this? What like how can we <clears throat> are we in the midst of a fascist terror campaign? Undoubtedly. You, you know, and and historically, it, it suffices to just look in the United States at the origins of the militia movement. You know, the interwar period in the United States, people weren't exactly messing around with fascism. I mean, the American Legion presented itself as the American Fascisti in the 1920s. And by the 1930s, there were numerous groups, one of which was the Silver Shirts, which was especially prominent in the Pacific Northwest, just like the Klan had been in the 1920s. And then after the war... Uh, one of the regional attaches for uh, the Pacific Northwest among the Silver Shirts crossed over and created this group called the Minutemen, which had a militia group. From from there, you end up with Posse Comitatus, which was started uh, actually in Portland, you know, by these by by these circles, and then and with Posse Comitatus was basically exploiting rural anger and aggression in. Uh, the Southwest and the Heartland, where the farm crisis really hit hard. They were strongly anti-Semitic and linked through a network of fascist groups and radical right groups linked to uh, Willis Carto, who was a Yaquiist. Francis Parker Yaki again. And Posse Comitatus, one of their uh, legion, Gordon Call, was gunned down in 1983 after killing some marshals, and uh, I believe he died in some sort of shootout or fire or something like that. So um, fascists heard about Gordon dying, and and they formed the order. Right, Bruderschweigen was brothers, the Silent Brotherhood, and uh, went on a killing spree. They killed Alan Berg, who was a radio talk show host in Denver. They robbed an armored car, dispersed millions of dollars, apparently, throughout the far right, and eventually were caught. After they got caught, you end up with this 
new kind of motion toward isolationism and solitude of like the white right winger recovering from this massive sort of up terrorist sort of insurgency or rather trying to develop it more and there was this guy right uh, randy weaver in idaho yeah. ruby ridge idaho who was part of this sort of complex of the aryan nations he was going there participating in meetings and things like that and uh, and he ended up in a standoff for refusing to appear in court, which resulted in the death of his son, a friend of the family, and his own wife. It's essentially, his, his compound was besieged by the FBI and other federal agents. Right, and, and the outside became the scene of a massive sort of fascist rally. So after and this Randy... was around the time frame of... The Branch Davidian raid down in Texas and um, Tim McVeigh's That's exactly right. city bombing. Tim McVeigh saw those two things, Randy Weaver and the Branch Davidian siege, as 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 a step too far. He saw he saw it as now it's time to fight back, right? And he had the Turner Diaries, which is a call to a civil war in the United States. Disgu- by, it's a it's a plan for civil war, essentially disguised as a novel. As a novel, yeah, written by William Pierce from the National Alliance, who was a member of the the Wallace campaign in the sixties, or at least the group had been a member of the Wallace campaign. He kind of took it over from the outside. Anyway, so yeah. Um, one of the things is blowing up a federal building. So that's what Timothy McVeigh did in Oklahoma City, killing a bunch of uh, preschoolers in the process. And uh, sentenced to death, obviously. So after... But but going back to Randy Weaver, which was very shortly before then, um, after the Randy Weaver fiasco, uh, white nationalist leaders met in Colorado in a ranch called Estes Park to uh, to develop the strategy that they wanted and they were like you know what like this is this is this is some material here like we've got this populist movement now that's saying the feds have gone too far you know they're coming for us they're coming for our guns they're coming for our ideology you know we can't even believe whatever we want to and so they created a, a, a strong backing for a militia movement that really had its roots way back in the mili- minutemen Posse Comitatus, and if you look before then, you know vigilante groups that po- that, that populated the Northwest, especially killing Chinese, you know, people and workers and so on. And so that's the birth of the militia movement right there, with John Trotchman's militia of Montana sort of leading the way, and then you have these sort of wingnut sovereign citizens, you know, in uh, Montana and uh, Idaho uh, coming out and saying. There's no amendment past the Tenth Amendment that's legitimate, you know. Natural citizens are white men, and, you know, women are basically their property, and so on and so forth. Using admiralty law to, you know, hold up the court system through fake liens and stuff like that. And this is also where we get the incredible sort of conspiracy theories, not just Holocaust denial, but the government is going to use Crips and Bloods to do house-to-house searches to find loyal patriotic gun owners, round them up, send them to FEMA camps so they can depopulate the West. Alex Jones stuff. Exactly. Alex Jones appears, right, during this time as kind of this sort of uh, leader among the AM radio conspiracists and so on that had been prominent ever since the John Birch Society did. Yeah, his roots are in the John Birch Society. And initially, you know, during the 90s, he doesn't front that stuff as much. It's more in a spirit of uh, of mischief or fun that he's he's promoting these conspiracy theories. Uh, yeah. And, they, and they're not 
as overtly political as they are today. You know, and now he's the voice of the Trump administration. I mean, essentially yeah. this ideology has taken over the Republican Party, which now controls, you know, the entirety of the federal government. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah, yeah, here, uh, yeah. This is this is where we get into like true American politics, which has always had these sort of insidious currents. I mean, if you look at the John Birch Society and what they were doing in the seventies and eighties, they had this group called the Western Goals Foundation, which was run by Roy Cohen. They had, you know, of course, links throughout, you know, this uh, Operation Condor network that the CIA had constructed, which also involved the um, the fascist terrorists and, and uh, uh, Franco's Spain and Salazar's Portugal, you know, these people would commit bombings in Italy and flee to Latin America through Franco, Franco Spain and plug into dictators uh, to crush left movements in, in South Bolivia America. and yeah. Chile and El Salvador. Right. Uh, so the John Birch Society had been very plugged in to these networks. And uh, Paul Weirich is part of that you know, formulation, which is why you get that sort of reactionary Catholic element even today with the new right that was established in the early 70s and carried through even into Steve Bannon's influence in the Trump administration. And what else did uh, Weirich create? He created uh, the Council for National Policy, and many of those uh, sort of the Mercer crew, you know, have been drawn into the Trump circles. You also find Roger Stone in the midst here. He started out with the Nixon administration as a dirty trickster and coasted in through the Reagan movement and uh, uh, created this sort of lobbying firm with Charlie Black that supported some of the most horrendous dictators throughout the entire world in history and then went back into politics in in the Bush administration by helping to hoist the Republicans back into power. Throughout this period, he's also providing a lot of political support for Donald Trump, right? So within the beginnings of the the patriot movement, and, and you also have Pat Buchanan here, like right. working through there, and Trump contesting Pat Buchanan in 2000 in the Reform Party ticket, um, you really get this really American version of fascism, which has, you know, it's got corporations. Yeah. That's the really big thing. I mean, Lawrence Dennis, who was one of the leading uh, U.S. fascists, he wrote this text called The Coming American Fascism in the Interwar Period. Um, he was actually disillusioned with U.S. imperialism, thought it was really reckless and, and badly carried off. And he believed that things should be done better through an executive council without, you know, the judiciary or Congress getting in the way. When you look at the calls that, say, neo-reactionaries have made for a CEO of the United States, right, this is very much in line with this sort of essential U.S. fascism that is slightly different from the version of the sovereign that Europeans sort of ideate. And with Donald Trump, I think that really, really comes out, especially with his fights against the media. He just hates everybody in the media yeah. who isn't his part of his propaganda. His fights against the judiciary, you know, like challenging whether or not a judge is a judge and things like that. I mean, he really yeah, the, has a there's problem. a tendency in the, I think the mainstream press especially to treat these as sort of bewildering eccentricities. What you're saying is they fit into a, a, a tradition. 
Sure, sure they do, yeah. He's he's also got that populism down pat. I mean, the militia movement was really developed by the fascist movement as a a kind of a, a buffer for plausible deniability. Much like the Front National was created by fascists to sort of get them out of the fascist ghetto, as they called it, ironically. Um, in the U.S., the militia movement is supposed to use the sort of radical right you know, vaguely maybe anti-racist attitude in order to gain publicity for right-wing causes and secure, you know, gun rights, of course, for themselves so that they can continue to be a paramilitary force for the far right and the interests of fascism. And this really is where those parallels can be drawn to uh, interwar Germany with the steel helmet and eventually the Nazis. Because what you really have there is this insurgency that undermines all the basic assumptions of Republican democracy. And it's a presence that does that through direct action by actually protesting a conservative regime from the right because they don't agree with the basic uses of power and the basic manifestations of power in everyday life. That, I really believe, goes back to that sort of patriarchal um, psychology, the disagreement with interracial couples, the, the hatred of... Uh, watching, you know, gay men kiss or the, you know, um, the disgust at seeing people of color in positions of power, you know, it's, it's this affective state of resentment that forms the basis for the ideological structures that come to pass. And I think that's why fascism is able to, to gain all of this syncretic ideological homogenization, right? You have like socialism with elitism and, fasc- and, and uh, ultra-nationalism and, you know, you can be like a Nazi Maoist. Those have been around. Jean-François Thierry was considered a, a Nazi Maoist along with Franco Freda and Claudio Muti. National anarchists, you know, coming Yeah, I've out. seen some of those pamphlets. I mean, th- <laughs> that might have been what you were alluding to at the very start of our conversation about uh, sort of fascist recruitment of anarchists. Because uh, I've, I've done some reading about the national anarchists. I mean, these are... It, it's almost, it lines up almost 100% with... Um, the Identity Europa, uh, sort of Richard Spencer universe of ethnic nationalism. And, yeah, in, uh, interestingly enough, tied directly again to that the, that period of the years of let. This guy named Roberto Fiore, who was a member of uh, Terza Posizione, was uh, suspected of participating in the bombing of a train station in Bologna which was, I think, the most destructive act during the years of lead. So he fled to um, England and took up with members of the National Front, a fascist party, in the early 80s who were disenfranchised and wanted to create a new ideological movement. So they created the official National Front with Nick Griffin, who became a prominent fascist politician. And a member of the official National Front was this guy named Troy Southgate. And Troy Southgate broke off into his own faction, the, or I think it's the National Revolutionary Faction or something like that, where he increasingly advocated entryism. Uh, in other words, you go infiltrate an already existing autonomous social movement and sort of try to take it over from the inside or dismantle it. 
if it won't turn fash. And he says that he infiltrated the Stop Huntington animal cruelty movement, and he infiltrated uh, the Animal Liberation Front, you know, these kinds of things. And he, with uh, Thierry and this guy named Christian Boucher in France, and the American Front, uh, James Perrazzo in uh, the U.S., they created this group called the, they nicknamed it the International of Mailboxes, and it became the European Liberation Front in the 90s, which then joined with Dugan and um, Dugan's network. And it became basically Dugan's network. And through that network, these ideas of, of national anarchism have really emerged as sort of, we don't need the Republican democratic system and representative democracy. All we need is our own communities based on ethnic lines with traditional family values or, or rather natural hierarchies, you know, that, uh, that date back to ancient pagan sort of oneness with nature. And so cr crunchiness on the left is a is an entry point, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and that's been that's been a real sort of turn since since the anti authoritarian turn of the left in the nineteen sixties. The end of the sixties, well, really in in the seventies, there was an effort even in Italy to create the Hobbit camp by fascists in order to sort of remake their image. But even the, the German Green Party had started out with significant fascist leadership, and which was rooted out by like students and leftists, but it was still significant, and it has its roots in the Volkish movement, right? So part of entryism was this idea of seeding the sort of parliamentary political sphere for a fight in a culture, you know, so Definitely. you saw, this is why you saw the fascist anti-fascist fights in the you know 80s and 90s happen in punk clubs right i mean this yes. this was where youth culture was happening so in the in the aughts and the you know the 2010s we saw a gamergate right that's just why gamer culture was significant this is the largest entertainment industry in uh our culture now uh, and it's all the kids are doing it it's not just some kind of D&D nerd thing anymore it's like pretty much every teenager Every elementary school kid and adults is yeah. playing video, in, engaging with video games in some way. So it becomes this important sort of cultural, political battleground. So also, you mentioned earlier, like the Silicon Valley ideology, and that's really helped things because the video games have been misogynistic, and the Silicon Valley culture has been misogynistic yes. and incredibly elitist, driving gentrification and things like that. And so it is a sort of capillary phenomenon in that, you know, gamers are sort of uniting in this political form, but also the games themselves are emerging from this extreme uh, patriarchal elitist establishment, racist establishment that has fascist elements like Peter Thiel. So that's got to be really uh, focused on and emphasized. I mean, it's true, like, in the 80s, you had the sort of, like, fascist skinheads who were coming out, and it was the official national front that was, like, really, like, those guys were the first ones to really promote that. And then, you know, Troy Southgate in the 90s and the aughts, there was also this new autonomous nationalism. Right. This like, well, the Antifa in Germany had been dressing up in black blocks and disrupting the, the fascist 
mobilizations and stuff. So they started dressing, the fascists started dressing in black blocks and attacking the police and showing up in May Day. And you really saw the effectiveness of that during the Ukraine revolution in 2014, where there were Stepan Bandera black blocks, you know, there was like Ukrainian ultra-nationalist black blocks that were, you know, seeing their origins in the sort of like... This was a Nazi militia that participated in the Holocaust. Nestor Machno, yeah, exactly. But like, Nestor Machno was a, a, an anarchist. Right, but they looked up to him and said, "No, this is the spirit of Ukrainian warriordom." You know, so they confused ultra-nationalist genocide with the anarchic figure of the outlaw and turned it toward the rebellion against the government at that point. I mean, this is you know the name that pops into my head as you're talking about this because I'm less familiar with the Ukrainian history as Julian Assange. I mean, mm-hmm. he is the the contemporary equivalent in many ways, right? His his politics are somewhat ambiguous. He sends a lot of um, uh, anti-Semitic signals. He sends a lot of far-right signals. I mean, you know, when when WikiLeaks party ran in Australia, they ran with the cooperation or or uh, uh, they allied with the essentially the fascist party there, the old uh, far-right party in that district. Sure. So. Well, he also has, you know, like, uh, Nigel Farage has paid him some visits and, yeah. uh, he's, he's, he's said but, things. But he still has an appeal on the left. Exactly. Because he's some outlaw, because he's whatever, po- has an anti-imperialist posture, although. Yep. Anti-imperialism. I mean, this is a, this is a real sort of, uh, rabbit hole, right? Because, like I was mentioning earlier, the fascists, even in the interwar period, were, you know, suggesting that England's imperialism justified fascist brutality. And this is kind of the loophole that fascists have always used against NATO, for example. If you reject NATO and say, yeah, NATO is a bad thing or something, the fascists say, well, then you must be on our side, right? Then you support Assad or you support, you know, whatever authoritarian regime would take NATO's place. And if you say no, then ah, you might as well be, you know, I was recently called uh, the radical faction of the Democratic National Convention, you know, because I don't support Assad and because, you know, I'm against Trump and things like that. So they run a really hard line, you know, they're really actually kind of strict when it comes down to geopolitics. Like, yes, you agree with us, but if you agree with us halfway, then you are a worse enemy. You know, I, and, it's, and it's confounding because you talk about the space, you know, I know part of the book deals with this and we sort of touched on it, but the spaces that the left has ceded to, to the uh, fascist movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't talk about Trump without talking about his appeal and the, and the points that he made, even during the campaign. I mean, uh, certainly even myself, I found myself saying, well, he's right about that once or twice, mm-hmm. you know, and he said a few things um, that uh, I think resonate. Well, he said a lot of things that resonated obviously profoundly with large numbers of Americans, uh, but he, he also spoke some taboo truths. Certainly. Uh, uh, and it still allows him to pick up some de facto defenders on the left you know, when it comes to uh, American foreign policy or, uh, you know, the, the, the corruption of the Democrats. I mean, decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are legitimate subjects. They were essentially taboo for and he broke the taboo. But f- for some reason, like you said, it's still zero sum. Like people feel like you can't both oppose Trump and acknowledge that some of what he said about the Democrats is true. 
Mm-hmm. Or, or or even like he actually sort of this is why fascists really liked him he also broached some subjects about geopolitics that they're really in favor of for example support putin stop with you know this uh love of the saudi regime stop attacking syria get out of syria uh, play hardball you know not putin but sure you know saudi and syria that was essentially the obama administration's policy sure in a sure. less forward way but which is why i think one of the big mistakes that obama made and i think that might have been part of the hubris of being in office for eight years is that he played into the oppositions and i don't think he finessed you know foreign policy very well um he he basically handed the kremlin um, Eurasian antipode on a on a silver platter, and and Putin ate it right up. I mean, Putin was saying things like the civilizational world has to unite, basically saying basically like we won't have any more ethnic minorities, and expressly discussing Eurasianism and saying we are a culturally homogenous nation, which in Russia is just. You know, people haven't talked... That's been untrue for more than a thousand years, you know? You see both sides, like, locked into this almost Hegelian battle of oppositions, making each other worse and worse. And then Trump comes in and effectively sort of, in a way, maybe capitulates to Putin. Um, And the fact that so many people agreed with him on the left, I think, marked a true failure of leadership... Um, in in left politics because nobody stood up and said... Actually, some people did, but they were shouted down. Here's what she's saying in terms of policy, like it or not. She's talking in policy terms. Let's actually think about that. Here's what he's saying in terms of geopolitics and ideology, you know, which we maybe agree with or don't, right? But the thing is that was the opposition. Nobody discussed policy during that election. Everybody discussed yeah, scandal and ideology. I, when you talk about the failure of left leadership, I don't even know where to start with that. Because, <laughs> because you know, uh, the Occupy movement, which was probably the beginning of the resurgence of left politics in the U.S., was avowedly non-hierarchical, no lead, like disavowed leaders entirely. Yes. You know, which I said even at the time was a huge mistake. Um, I think a lot of people have come around to that point of view, but you still see the idea that to be a leader is to be a, a, a some some kind of traitor to the left because it's like the left doesn't want power in the in the U.S. You know, there's still this sort of like comfort in powerlessness. You know, this sort of fatalism of like, well, if we never have power, we can never be wrong. And you certainly see liberals in the U.S. have essentially broken with the left almost entirely. You see a sort of awkward dance the Democrats have with the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, <laughs> you know, but at the same time saying he's not really Democrat, so they, you know, they don't have to own it. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, in, in very prominent spheres, particularly on the East Coast of liberalism, allying with the likes of, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos and, and saying that, um, you know, free speech on campus, uh, you know, yeah. meaning only free speech for Nazis, you know, right. that's the only context they ever talk about it, is, you know, a core value. It's hard to know who to blame for the failure of leadership on the left. Democrats, certainly. McCarthy. <laughs> McCarthy. Well, right. So there's an extent to which it's left leaders have been uh, destroyed. The CIA. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, 
you know, uh, it, it's hard to say. I mean, to the extent, like, certainly, uh, you know, in the 60s, you did have uh, strong left leaders, Martin Luther King. Um, lots of people pointed out that the, he was assassinated not long after he started, you know, linking his you know, racial justice argument with an economic justice argument. Mm-hmm. And an anti-war one. Um, and then COINTELPRO against the Panthers, you know, from 68 and into the 70s, probably still today. Earth First was you know, entrapped a couple of times. Judy Berry's car was bombed in that really twisted case in, in Oakland. And then there's the Green Scare in the 2000s. I mean, yeah, there's been some serious political repression in the U.S. that has made the left scared for good reason to actually organize, you know, strong positions. Well, it certainly has been under... I mean, the, the, the real left, to the extent that we can talk about that in the U.S., essentially has been underground for the last... 30 years. I mean, there's a lot of what we've t- been talking about, I was going to ask you, I mean, why is it still underground history? Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's not like it's not documented. It's just not really talked about or, or taught. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most innocuous explanation is um, capitalist liberalism in the U.S. was really pleased with itself and had a narrative that was very flattering and, you know, just didn't bother um, looking at what the right was doing in the post-World War II period. Mm. Um, or, you know, the the, uh, the relationship of um, the left and right and liberalism in the pre-war years, it was just a bit too unpleasant, so let's just focus on, we kicked the Nazis' ass, yeah. you know? There's also a libertarian current throughout the U.S. history that has rejected sort of a formally organized uh, left-wing presence ever since the Socialist Party, I guess. Well, libertarianism, I mean, has become like over the last, you know, 40 years became like the dominant ideology, right? I mean, I think more more people that describe themselves as liberals, um, even people on the left, like this idea of libertarianism holds like a lot of appeal. Yeah. Because of our own, you know, sort of national mythology. Yeah, it also goes back to the New Right in, in the early 70s, where uh, uh, the Koch brothers um, gained a significant foothold in, in politics through, you know, not just ALEC or whatever, but um, the, the Cato Institute, you know, and um, funding uh, patriot movement type stuff through the wise use movement, you know, pro-industry, anti-environmental stuff. Um, as well as eventually the Tea Party, right? Yeah, which, right, is like kind of a flowering of... I mean, th- this is really where the, the militia movement, which had yeah. picked up a lot of those fascist undercurrents, comes out of the underground and re-enters sort of electoral politics. Yeah, it's also where, you know, they start saying that true fascism is the liberals, you know the 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 fascists are really liberals. They they you know um, more socialist than nationalists. Or you know we're not national. We're conservatives. And you know uh, you know don't look at this you know fascist guy over here who just shot up you know a synagogue. You know look uh, at yeah. the at the liberals. They're the real big bad guys. I saw somebody on uh, Twitter. Uh, one of my uh, followers, mutual followers. It was sort of uh, taking some schadenfreude in, in this guardian, this obnoxious Guardian reporter, Ben Jacobs, getting attacked by a, you know, a Trumpist Republican in Montana. And, you know, you don't have to like 
everything that Ben Jacobs writes to say, hey, that's kind of screwed up. Like, this Republican did not body slam this guy because he didn't agree with his uh, articles uh, from a whatever left materialist analysis he, <laughs> yeah. it was because he was like a Jewy reporter guy and he didn't want him in his office asking him questions anymore yep. like bottom line mm-hmm. so if you can't I mean if you can't unite on stuff like that I don't even know oh yeah well I mean there's a there's a a, a clip of a of a fascist being punched on French TV by this guy named Alan Sorrell and uh, Sorrell and uh some leftists were sharing this like, yeah, punch fascist always. But they didn't realize that Alan Sorrell is also a fascist. So it's like, come on, y'all. <laughs> I mean, I realize you like the kind of like tactic or strategy or whatever. But like, sometimes you have to look a little deeper um, at, at the, the, the agents and the agency involved. Right. And, and we need to realize and, and figure out what's best, you know, in the short and long term. You know, um, and often that's not as clear cut and it's not as ideologically pure. We have to react to the way that history is taking shape. You know, we can't just say this is the right way to go. You know, people have to be flexible and they have to understand conditions as they're happening instead of just sort of like you were saying, reading off of a textbook answer to all the guidelines, you know, that somebody wrote down a hundred years ago. Yeah, or even arguing, you know, about Trotsky and Stalin, like, it's, like, contemporary stuff, like, it's past, it's over, like, like, let's deal with now, you know? Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's always kind of, uh, sad to see this kind of thing. Again, we're, we're back to where we kind of started with this Montana stuff. It's, it really is kind of like a referendum on people's values and, and principles, and sadly, I, I think that um, the principles of freedom and equality are dwindling. And I think we need to actually stand up for, the, for, for those principles beyond the uh, finer techniques of ideology and, and, and dogma, you know, and, and go where, where that leads us. And I think so often people lose sight of that because they're too invested in, in personal grudges and ideological arguments like this is living history right like uh yeah you know these these blurred lines between organized crime uh this uh, unaccountable intelligence world between ideological yeah. movements that have shaped the 20th and the current century yeah like it's uh, not about taking sides right it's yeah. not about saying i support clinton right it's it's about like getting closer and closer to to finding out what's real and what isn't well, that's, I mean, this is the, the, the facts are on our side, you know, which is why even if you don't agree with like a particular publication or reporter that's getting, you know, assaulted now by thugs, <laughs> you know, seeking political power, like you might not want to cheerlead their, uh, you know, their beatdown because right. like ultimately the facts will help. Yeah. You know, to the extent that people are paying attention to them, that's another issue. Anyway, this is a good place to wrap it up. Thank, uh, it was a good talk. That was Alexander Reed Ross, author of Against the Fascist Creep. Thanks, Alex. Again, I'm Corey Pine. This has been News from Nowhere. I'll catch you again soon.